Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hey everyone, uh, we are here today with Dr. Marin Palud, and we're going to be discussing her, um, a biological and forensic reassessment of vulture deflushing and mortuary practice at Neolithic, and I'm going to butcher this, Tatalhoyuk. <laughs> Um, but before we get into that, Dr. Pulud, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? How, I mean, what initially interested you in biological anthropology and more specifically this research in, um, in Turkey? Wow. Um, well, first, thank you for having me <laughs> uh, to talk about this work. Um, I am one of those uh, biological anthropologist who actually started out in archaeology. So all my undergraduate um, training and education was in archaeology. And I did, I worked um, contract archaeology for several years. And we ended up um, working a lot of uh, burial sites. And that's how I got interested in the, the bioarchaeology side of it. So then I went to grad school at Ohio State to pursue the, my research interests in bioarchaeology to work with uh, Clark Larson. And he had been invited to work at Chatalhuyuk. And so he took me and a couple of other grad students um, over the years, and I kind of just really liked it. I actually, I did my undergraduate at uh, UC Berkeley, and Ruth Tringham was there, and she was working at Chatalhuyuk. So I had already done research projects on Chatal as an undergrad. Uh, so I knew the site well. I had wanted to go as an undergrad, but they wouldn't let me go. They, they said I couldn't go. <laughs> um, so I was super excited to go as a grad student. And I, I've always really enjoyed um, prehistory and just old um, archaeological sites. So I was really excited to go to this this site that was one of the earliest villages and one of the beginnings of, um, of farming in the, in the world. So this this article um, you helped um, that you were a part of um, putting together, right? We're talking about Neolithic site in uh, Chattahulik, and you bring up how initially this this research initially began was you know you, you bring up James Mellar and you know his his findings of the wall paintings and the vulture birds hovering over a body and um, in combination with the various states of human remains that were excavated in the site, which kind of led to the idea uh, that it's possible that vultures were used in defleshing um, human remains prior to burial. Um, and you guys go into discussing, you know, how recent forensic research could possibly help in supporting this idea. Um, So, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> trying to transition into this question. Um, so, I'm um, going into this. Can you kind of uh, explain to listeners how, what the burial practice was like in terms of where people burial buried? Um, I mean, you mentioned people bury. Oh, geez, people would bury remains. Um, in their homes, um, under the, the platforms of the central rooms. I mean, how, I mean, how common was it to find, find remains in homes, 
um, how common was it to find multiple individuals in the home? And I mean, on average, I mean, for those who did have individuals in, in, in their home, I mean, on average, how many remains would there be? So, um, so the site of Chachalhuyuk, um, it's, you know, around 9,000 years old, um, outside Konya, so kind of central Anatolia. And it's um, all mud brick buildings with uh, plastered, white plastered walls and floors and then kind of um, wood roofs and things. And uh, all the buildings were adjoining. So there was, um, they shared walls, so there's no windows, there's no doors. People came in and out of the homes through the roofs. And sort of everything happened inside those homes. I mean, and we kind of use the term home loosely. They were buildings, but we know that they were living in them. They were um, processing foods. They were making stone tools. They had, every building had a hearth. Um, they had different platforms. They had storage areas. So they were definitely doing a lot inside these homes. And then also they buried their dead under the platforms, the floors of these homes. And the, the vast majority of the burials are, are single interments, so just one individual. But every once in a while we find um, areas where multiple people were, in, were interred. Um, so that could be two, three, four, up to 20, you know, individuals in the same sort of spot. And it would kind of happen over time. So it wasn't necessarily that they all died at the same time and were buried together. One person would be interred and then they'd go to the same spot and kind of push the other remains aside or take remains out and put in new remains. Um, and this was a fairly common practice at this time in the Near East. So during the Neolithic, this was um, this was how most of the sites were burying their dead, you know, intramural burials or within buildings. Um, and other sites do show sort of this evidence of, of what they called skull caching, um, where they would take skulls out and arrange them in different spots um, and put them in different buildings and bury them together. And we, and we see this at Chital too, um, sort of to a lesser degree than at some other sites, but we see that they were taking heads out. Um, there's uh, evidence of, of one plastered head that was found, and it's found in the arms of a of a female skeleton. Um, so they were kind of moving things around, reusing different body parts. And it, it's interesting that you bring up Mellart because Mellart, um, you know, excavated the site in the 60s um, and was eventually kicked out of Turkey for kind of, it's kind of a long story, but he wasn't allowed to do archaeology anymore. There's a book about it called The Dorak Affair. It's pretty great. But um, he was accused of kind of stealing artifacts and wasn't allowed to excavate there anymore. Um, but he excavated, you know, this was kind of this col very cl colonial archaeology and where they would excavate, you know, just massive amounts of the site at once um, and would hire tons of people to do the kind of work for them. And they they would just plow through, you know, um, so much stuff that we kind of care carefully excavate now. And they they didn't care about the burials. They would kind of just take them out. And we, we can go through Millart's dirt pile and it's just full of human remains because um, they just, you know, they were going so fast excavating everything. So Millart, because he saw so much of the site, was able to make a lot of sort of sweeping statements about the site. Um, and one of them was that he thought that there was vulture defleshing before the bodies were buried. And so, you know, you come back in the 90s and you do your scientific excavations and you think, oh, what they did in the 60s, you know, that was like 
not how we do archaeology today. So kind of um, there was this uh, maybe a little bit of a backlash to some of the ideas that Mellart had, which included this idea of vulture defleshing. At, at least I was convinced that we would see evidence of kind of beak marks or something on the the remains. And so we kind of dismissed this idea that, that the bodies were, were defleshed because there were no cut marks. Um, we've only found one skeleton that had cut marks. Um, so we, we just were like, no, I don't, Mellard was probably wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. Um, so then I kind of, so I, my first time in, um, so that was like in the, the late aughts was when I was doing a lot of my graduate work and excavating in, in Chital. And then in kind of the early teens, 2010, 2012, 13, 14, I was working as a forensic anthropologist for the Defense POW MIA accounting agency in, in Hawaii. And we would see um, some remains that had had been defleshed by, by vultures would come through the lab. And it really struck me <laughs> how much they looked kind of like the remains I had seen at Chital. Um, and so I was like, kind of rethought this this initial idea of, you know, maybe Millard wasn't so wrong. So then, you know, I got in contact with them, you know, my collaborators on this paper, and we kind of worked through it and talked, you know, if, if there was vulture defleshing, what would we expect to see? And so we kind of went through um, all these different kind of scenarios that we lay out in the paper where we think, you know, this, this could be one possible um, explanation for some of the things that we see at the site is that they would probably leave them out to be to be defleshed by vultures. That was a very long answer to your to your question. <laughs> uh, no, but it was good and it leads kind of into the next question um because you do mention research shows that the the vulture markings were shallow and can be similar to the root etching and disappear with weathering um I mean and uh could you can you describe the some more of the like indirect evidence of possible vulture deflushing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so on. Um, so on for like modern remains and research on um, just kind of raptor scavenging or you know um, birds eating carrion. What what that looks like on on the skeleton. So there can be um, small like shallow scratches to the bone from claws and beaks. Um, some initial work on um, vulture scavenging um, has indicated that they like to kind of um, uh, poke out the area around the eyes um, and they'll stand on the chest and kind of hop up and down and so they'll break the ribs and um, poke out the eyes. So, th so those three things, kind of these shallow scratches, rib fracturing, kind of specific rib fracturing and fracturing around the, the orbits, um, could be indicative of, of um, you know, birds scavenging these remains. But those are all things that are really hard to detect on remains that are, you know, 9,000 years old because all yeah. the ribs are kind of broken and, you know, there's root etching and um, cortical exfoliation, so we don't see, we can't see some of these shallows. I did actually, this is not in the paper, but I did... Um, some of the, the remains that were like really um, super flexed or looked like they might have been scavenged or had, you know, body parts removed. I did take um, sort of casts of some of the ends of the long bones to see if I could see, you know, microscopically any sort of 
shallow marks or anything. Um, and I just really couldn't see anything. So it's, yeah, it's just hard to, all of that is hard, hard to see. I would think that, I mean, I'm not a biological anthropologist yet, but (laughs) I would, I would think that if they were fleshing the remains themselves, there would be cut marks on the bones from tools and then I'm I'm thinking if you're burying someone under your home, you would want to deflush them because, I mean, I'm, I would think the de- decomposing would get a little smelly. So, yeah. Yeah. And there has been, I mean, and smells, you know, are pretty cultural, too. So maybe it didn't bother them or they didn't think about it or who knows. Um, but there has been some sort of experimental work done where, you know, they would bury, they'd build an experimental house that was similar to these houses and bury like a, an animal in there. And it, and it does get kind of smelly. Um, and then there's also like, you know, the bloat and the decomp. And so you could get slumping of the floor. And we do see some slumping of the floors where the, these burials are. But, you know, um, not to, you know, a, a very serious degree. Um yeah and uh, the cut marks so like we don't see cut marks there like I said there's only one skeleton that I know of at least um that that has shown a human remains that shows cut marks you know on the cervical vertebra but to be fair the animal remains that we're presuming that they're eating you know all the sheep and goat and cow and auroch um they don't have very many cut marks either. So they might have just been, they could be just very skilled. Um, they do seem to have, you know, some advanced knowledge of anatomy, even just based on some of the um, the figurines that they've made that show kind of skeletal, um, you know, ribs and, you know, pelvis and things. So they they seem to have an intimate understanding of the skeletal remains, which makes sense with how they're kind of interacting with their, um, the remains after, after the person has deceased, you know, they're, we know that they're digging these spots back up. So they're probably seeing the skeletons. Um, so yeah, but, but, you know, if they were heavily defleshing the bones, I I would expect to see something, (laughs) some, some more sort of evidence, which, which, you know, is kind of, um, leading up, leads me back a little bit to this idea that vultures were, we're doing some of the work for them. Right. Actually, that's that's uh, very interesting that you that you say that. It brings me to a question that I had, and I think you actually covered some of it in one of the earlier questions. But um, intermural burying. I hope I'm saying uh, burial. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, so when when we say that, you know, when I was reading it, I hadn't really um, heard the word before. So I looked it up, and I'm like, okay buried in you know inside the house in walls uh, and, and it made me think of like those old Indiana Jones movies you're seeing you know the skulls built in the walls and stuff like that and you know the skull caches in, in particular it makes me think that there was uh, there was definitely a lot of interest in you know their physiology right and um, in particular the the anatomy of the skeleton mm-hmm. yeah and it's just um you know, a different way of of thinking about death, in a sense, um, mm-hmm. and how kind of the that person's corporeal remains, you know, still have a function uh, yeah, throughout. Yeah, still have value. Yeah, and they're still, and like I said, we know that they're still um, using. You know, they there's the one plastered skull 
um, that's it's a cranium and a mandible, and they plastered it, fashioned a plaster nose, um, painted it um, red with either ochre or cinnabar. Um, there's recently some of my colleagues who were on this paper also published a paper of um, a human tooth that was used worn as a as a necklace so they put a hole in it and you know you could see all the the wear in that um kind of that puncture hole so they were they were adorning themselves with human remains or at least a tooth um so it's just yeah a very different um sort of approach and understanding to to death and you know the human body it's oh yeah absolutely i mean Coming from an American culture, that um, I, you know, personally, obviously, I, I you know, then the reading and I've uh, looked into it a little bit, but even for for somebody coming from an anthropology an anthropological background, it it seems very um, very different. I'll put it that way, um, from from the way we treat our own our own dead. Yeah, and it's um, even like in working on this, there are other. Um, you know, cultures that do um, kind of the vulture um, scavenging prior to interment. Um, so it wasn't, you know, totally, I mean, it's still kind of a, um, a practice that's around today. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, that's part of what's so great about anthropology, I guess, is you just, you get to learn all sorts of different ways of, of being and thinking and, um, you know. All right. Um, just makes me think of like keeping your loved one nears and when my husband dies, I'm just going to carry his tooth around my neck. Um, <laughs> I would not do that. <laughs> um, oh, I, okay. Do you have any other questions related to the article, Les? Uh, well, actually, I, I did, but Palud, you actually... Um, answered most of them as you were answering um, Ashley's questions. I, I definitely enjoyed your stories uh, and you, you went thoroughly over you know a, a lot of the uh, questions that I had but I was uh, I think you already covered uh, covered it but I wanted to know in particular I think like I said I think you already covered it. I was gonna ask what drew your interest into this particular project? Yeah yeah so the um, mortuary practices have always kind of super fascinated me um it's just so interesting how people grieve I guess and and also how um like I've said how they choose to interact with the bodies and it's mortuary practices are the kind of the one thing that's done to the dead but it's clearly for the living um mm -hmm. so it's an interesting insight into the living really and and how they view death and how how that kind of changes over time. You know, when did we very first start, um, you know, as a, you know, human species, as anatomically modern humans, when did we start burying our dead or putting grave goods in there or um, treating the remains before they were interred? And all of that is so fascinating to me as we just kind of um, change how we interact with our landscape and with each other and as cultures change and you know, we're farming and building houses and that's all, um, it's all part of it. You know, the, the mortuary practices are just are a piece of that that shows like kind of this really interesting insight into worldviews and social structures and 
um, you know, there's so much you can you can glean from just how people bury their dead. Um, so, so that's like always been really, really interesting to me. And then just, um, you know, the, this this project or this research too kind of brings together lots of different pieces of how, where people are buried, how they're buried. And then we bring in the vulture iconography, so the paintings on the walls. There's, um, you know, a vulture claw was found on site, so there's vulture remains on site, um, but not a lot, you know, but there's some. So we're bringing in, you know, faunal remains, art, mortuary practice, um, and then taphonomy and forensic anthropology. And so all of these things are coming together to kind of try to answer this one question. And I, I think that that's, um, that's also kind of really exciting to me is just this idea of, um, you know, interdisciplinary research and just kind of looking at lots of pieces of the puzzle to try and answer this question. And, and I, you know, I think that too, there's um, bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology have a lot to learn from each other. And, and hopefully this article kind of shows that, that I've, Hopefully we've been able to successfully integrate those two to try to, you know, get to these mortuary practices from thousands of years ago. Oh, yeah. I, one of the best parts about, um, was it uh, anthropology that I've noticed is that it, we do have so many different disciplines that we can draw upon to actually um, try and glean information. It, it's uh uh, for for those of us who really have a wide variety of interests, it just puts a lot on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and I think I mean that's something that I think um, anthropologists are well positioned to do too. Is kind of say, oh, I, you know, I know something about chemistry, but I know I'm not an expert in chemistry, so I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, try and talk to this chemist or this geologist or or somebody else and try to bring in um, different experts to try and solve solve a problem. So this article came out um, a couple years ago. Uh, since since you guys released this, has there been any more uh, vulture research that that could add on to this? Not a ton. Um, and I've been I've been trying to keep an eye on it, <laughs> um, but but not not too too much. I think. Um, some of the research at some of these uh, decomp facilities has kind of gone sort of a different direction. Um, so yeah, yeah, not a ton, but I should, I should, um, you know, give it another, give it another look, see what else is going on out there. And some of it too has looked at um, kind of how, um, how vultures could spread remains too. And so that's something else to try and help find, you know, surface scatter and things. And, and that's not something we see at Chital. So it's, um, you know, we're, it's very specific what's happening at Chital. It's like, clearly somebody had to be watching the remains to make sure, you know, that as soon as they were basically defleshed, they would gather them up so that the vultures wouldn't, you know, move them around or anything. So it's, yeah, there's kind of different research questions for the forensic world than, that was actually a question that I forgot to ask. Um, just the the fact that all of were the um, the skeletons mostly complete, and if so, does that mean that somebody had to be observing the process? Yeah, I think so. The skeletons are mostly complete. You know, all the hands and feet, the small little hand and feet bones are all there, um, and and you see that you know with with um, scavenged remains. 
the, the, that kind of desiccated soft tissue will still hold those, a lot of those small bones together. Um, so it's possible for all of that to happen, but they do need to be kind of watched. And there is actually, I think, um, there's a figure in the paper, I think I have it pulled up, it's figure six. It's, um, you know, it's from Mellart's 1967 book. Um, and it's a, it's a man who has two vulture or, or a person, a, a human figure, I guess. Um, and there's two vultures, one on either side. And this human figurine also has a headless body next to them. And the figurine is holding what looks like a lasso. Um, and initially, Millart had interpreted that as the lasso was kind of like, like a sling that they would kind of, um, you know, swing around in a circle to call the vultures. Um, so he, this was interpreted as, as, you know, they were calling the vultures in to deflesh this body um, that they would kind of monitor over time. Um, and then once the body was generally defleshed, they would gather it up um, and, and then bury it. And then I, I think that they would take the heads off then before they buried them. Um, and that's what this figure, this painting is kind of showing is there's, you know, the two vultures, one person calling the vultures, and then there's a headless body next right there too. Um, right. So based on, and I talk about it a little bit in the paper, but based on, um, you know, the size of the graves, um, the articulation of the, the spine, it looks like the, the, the heads at least are being removed prior to interment. So I think that that's much easier to do once most of the flesh has been, been taken off. Yeah. I'm just getting this image of this poor guy having to stand next to these corpses and having to shoo away vultures when they've had enough. <laughs> Go away now. You've had your fill. I got the opposite image. I, I when we were talking, I was thinking like, is this like a, a group event? Do we have the uh, a group of people watching? Maybe the the close family members, um, all observing this as maybe a um, part of their bereavement ritual. Hmm. Yeah, and that that is hard to know. Yeah, obviously, but it just it, that that was what um, crossed my mind there. Yeah, or it's like the guy who got injured at work who can't do anything so he has to stand out there until he gets better um <laughs> i don't know oh uh, so dr palud uh what projects are you currently working on Oof. <laughs> um well i am i am working with um so part of my dissertation research at chital was looking at um, mortuary practice, essentially, but looking at uh, kind of using teeth as a proxy for DNA to identify related individuals to see if people who were buried together were biologically related. And so at the time, I, I had argued that, that they weren't biologically related because uh, they weren't, you know, their skeletons weren't very similar, at least their teeth weren't very similar, of people who were buried together or even near each other. Um, so right now I've been working with a, a huge team um, of researchers and archaeologists from across Europe um, and Turkey, and we're um, extending kind of through a bunch of different Neolithic sites and um, looking at ancient DNA data to kind of look at the same sorts of things 
to see if people who are buried together in various um, central Anatolian Neolithic sites and um, and into Barjan, which is kind of outside Istanbul, um, if they are related. And it looks like um, they're not. Same as kind of what I found. The earlier sites, there's more biological relatedness in, in um, individuals who are buried together. And then once you get to kind of Chital and the later Neolithic sites, there's less related biological relationships amongst individuals buried together. So we're just continuing that work. I'm working with uh, Mehmet Somel at um, Middle Eastern Technical University and his research team. And uh, we're comparing kind of the dental and the DNA results at, um, at Chital, and we're kind of looking at different migration patterns and all sorts of things that just to, to link up those two things, the skeletal kind of morphology with the, um, with the DNA. So that's, that's kind of where, where I'm going right now with some of this work. That sounds fun. Well, to me, that does. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> Anything else, Les? No, that's about what I have. I mean, I'm sure I'll think of more questions later on, and um, maybe I'll reach out and, and ask more specific, or we could have you on again. But for now, I think that's what I've got. Yeah, yeah. if you have follow-up questions, then that's, we could totally set up another time. And uh, maybe we'll go ahead and put a link to your bio in the description if anybody else has any questions for you or wants to read this article. Um I know that uh, it's not it's not always finding articles. It's not easy finding articles if you don't have like university access or research gate access. In fact, it's actually really hard to do so. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Dr. Palud, for joining us today. Yes, thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, we enjoyed it. So and like I mentioned to our listeners, if you're if you're interested in, in her work, um, she has a lot of great research, especially those interested in biological anthropology. Go ahead and uh, click the link to her bio. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.